Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 159. Today, we are going to be talking about how to communicate cinematically, or aka, I'm going to call this episode an idea in every shot. This actually came as we are heading into our final laps with Hitchcock. One of the things that I read was Hitchcock said that he felt that young folks, uh, as film schools were coming up right as he was at the end of his career, he really felt that uh, young filmmakers should learn first how to communicate cinematically or visually without uh, using dialogue. He had actually, of course, come up in the silent era. And uh, I'll get into this in a moment, but as I've gotten older, I've actually really come to respect the real profound intelligence and in what, what he was saying, but I really rebelled against it when I was younger. I want to let you know that finally, finally, uh, we will be back to conversation-based podcasts with uh, the Secret Movie Club team with our next podcast, Secret Movie Club Pod uh, 160. We're going to be talking about documentaries, Crumb, and American Movie. Uh, we've been here before. We've talked about docs before, but I want to revisit the documentary, especially because in 2024, Secret Movie Club is going to be putting uh, a bigger emphasis on at least a doc much more often than we have. Uh, and that'll be our next podcast. And I'll come back to that in a moment. This week, uh, next Thursday and Friday, November 2nd and November 3rd, we are partnering with the Guadalajara Film Festival. This is our third year together, and I'm very grateful for this partnership. And uh, Thursday, we here at the Secret Movie Club Theater are going to be doing two programs of amazing contemporary Latinx Mexican BIPOC cinema. And then Friday, uh, we are also doing a, a program of shorts and then a feature film uh, that is here at the Secret Movie Club Theater. And we are doing a very big film at the Million Dollar Theater, Maestra, which is going to have uh, an amazing audience, the filmmakers. And this is our biggest partnership yet with the Guadalajara Film Festival in many ways. Uh, there you go. Okay, moving on. So today, uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 50, 159, I wanted to talk um, about how to what does it mean to communicate cinematically? Uh, and I, I sort of the subheading of this is an idea in every shot. And where this came from was in reading about Hitchcock, as Hitchcock was making his final films in the 60s and 70s, film schools were uh, starting to be ascendant. Uh, the first generation of film school students who would have a huge impact on uh, cinema, actually it already started to happen interestingly. There were film schools, uh, I think, as early as probably as early as cinema. Um, so I don't want to make a statement that's not backed up by fact. I'm sure there were. Uh, however, I know that people like James Ivory, interestingly, of Merchant Ivory, had gone to something like US, a USC cinema school uh, in the 40s or the 50s. So uh, there were film schools that I believe were starting to coalesce in the 40s and 50s. Nevertheless, uh, by the time the 60s and 70s came around, uh, film schools were pretty established, and you started to get people like George Lucas, John Milius, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, uh, and and a whole host of other people from that era coming out. Francis Ford Coppola coming out of film schools, and w the thing that Hitchcock said was he felt 
that people going to film school should, the first thing they should do is learn how to communicate cinematically. And, and he meant visually, but I actually want to make a distinction in that. I actually think there is a difference between communicating visually and communicating cinematically. And uh, I, I believe that Hitch ultimately was talking about learning how to communicate cinematically. Obviously, I don't want to put words in his mouth because I actually think he said visually. And what he meant was uh, he had come out of the silent era, as had a number of uh, our most amazing directors, Um, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Fritz Lang. We've, We've discussed this before, Sergei Eisenstein. They began in silent film and Lubitsch, interestingly. Uh, and then they transitioned, and even filmmakers that I'm, I'm not super familiar with, but see, you know, DeMille uh, and uh, others, Eric von Stroheim, Jean Renoir, uh, who I am super familiar with, one of my favorites, Jean Renoir, came out of silence. And so all these filmmakers uh, initially had been influenced by Chaplin and Griffith and Eisenstein. And so it was almost um, second nature uh, to come up with or think cinematically when sound came not that it encouraged laziness but suddenly you were able in dialogue to communicate things that you couldn't communicate before and there was a period especially in american cinema i can't speak to any of the other world cinemas but in american cinema where suddenly studios thought the answer lay in sort of broadway directors and writers And so there was this renaissance of amazing dialogue, which is absolutely cinematic. I want to be very clear. I I love amazing dialogue, and I miss it. I I don't think of myself as um, a Puritan by any sense of the imagination, Uh, but I find myself lamenting how so much dialogue in the last— and this has been going on for a long, long time, but how so much dialogue— just resorts to profanity. And that profanity does not offend me. There's a laziness when you can communicate, oh, I, we forgot to communicate this. Let's just communicate it in dialogue. <laughs> and, you know, look, that's a fix. I'm, I'm editing my first feature film right now, and I am pretty sure that I'm going to have to resort to off-screen dialogue and ADR and a number of things to make things clear. And that's a bummer uh, for me. I, I just didn't nail it cinematically when we were shooting. So it, it's dialogue is absolutely a tool uh, and very, very important. And, and I do want to say movies like one of my favorite movies of all time is His Girl Friday, which was originally based on uh, a play by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur called The Front Page. And Howard Hawks took it and, and changed. It was two men originally, an editor and a writer. And he changed the writer to a woman. And then he changed the relationship between the editor and the writer. They were still editor and writer on a newspaper, but they had also been husband and wife and they had just divorced. And she comes, if you've never seen His Girl Friday, it starts with her coming back to the office uh, after the divorce has been made final with her fiancé, played by Ralph Bellamy, to sort of finalize the divorce and, and talk to Walter Burns, played by Cary Grant. Uh, Hildy is played by Rosalind Russell. It's such an amazing movie. And the dialogue in the movie is, to me, some of the best dialogue in any film ever. And it, it dialogue is absolutely cinematic. And I, I write uh, myself, and uh, I really don't like my scripts personally until I feel there's some really golden, good, juicy uh, dialogue in it. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Hitchcock said communicate visually. And what I think he meant by that, and it's interesting, I think he even said this, it's that your movie should be able to go to another country. And if the person in that country didn't understand your language and there were no subtitles on the movie, 
they actually would still follow the story. And I think that's pretty good advice, personally. I, this got me to thinking about something that I've, I've over the years has developed into a rule for me. And I just, you know, I hope I get to make movies so that I can try to implement this rule. But that rule is there should be an idea in every shot. And that's something that whenever I see a filmmaker and there's an idea in every shot, I know, I know I'm in good hands. The, 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 that idea could be a costume idea. It could be a visual idea. It could be an editing idea. It could be a sound idea. It also it can be a character idea. So taking this Hitchcock ma maxim, I just started to think, what does it mean to communicate cinematically? Like, let's get into real examples here. What does it mean to have an idea in every shot? W one of the first filmmakers who comes to my mind very easily is F.W. Murnau. I Murnau, uh, who you know from Nosferatu, the Last Laugh and Sunrise, probably his three biggest titles. Nosferatu, actually, it seems to me in rap, maybe being his most seen movie. Uh, as much as I love Nosferatu, it's not Nosferatu that I go back to. I, I enjoy seeing it. We've programmed it many times. I think it's a dynamite picture. Nothing against Nosferatu. Um, but I am a big Faust, Last Laugh, and Sunrise. All three movies made in the silent era, silent films. And Murnau, there's not a, there's not a wasted moment. Murnau came out of theater. He was theater trained. And I think when you see the greatest theater trained directors, and again, this is even a conversation and I'm not going to get into it right now because there are a lot of theater trained directors and it just too, that could be a pod on its own. I mean, you have theater trained directors like Aaliyah Kazan and then you have theater trained directors like Orson Welles and what they do in cinema is actually to me quite different. Um, but Murnau uh, having come up in expressionism in the theater and then going to cinema in the teens and the 20s, you just see that he you see this exuberance with uh, this new like uh, these new art, this new art form. I mean, Wells used to call cinema the greatest train set a, a kid ever had. And uh, 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 with Murnau. For instance, even the inner titles, which are the the titles in between the shots in silent films, so you see what people are saying or the story can be told. That you know, even the titles, he would have artists do things dynamically with the titles. So you know, an example that jumps to my mind is in Faust, his adaptation of Faust. At the end of Faust, the angel is confronting the fallen angel Satan, Mephistopheles, and says, there's one thing that can beat you, and he says, love, which in German is Liebe. Uh, but instead of just, which most silent films would just have that, Liebe, uh, he does this thing where uh, it, the inner title is in clouds, and Liebe like, is small, and then it comes, and it's big, and it's shining, and it's moving, so that even the text... There was an idea there to do something visually with the text. In The Last Laugh, uh, I always point out, uh, and Hitch talked about this in The Lodger. You know, if you've ever seen The Lodger, there's the very famous shot everybody talks about where uh, Hitch couldn't communicate that the, lo the Lodger is about a family thinking that they have a tenant in their house who might be Jack the Ripper, might be a killer, basically. And he's pacing upstairs, up and downstairs. And Hitch said that because it was silent, if it had been sound, he probably would have just communicated that with a bouncing chandelier and the sound of the glass, glass bouncing, which is a cinematic idea, and the sound of the feet. But what he had to do was, what is that? Because he, he couldn't do that sound because it was silent. So he cuts to this shot where he had a glass floor 
and the camera is underneath and you see from an angle you never would get uh, a total like a, a total artistic angle you see the lodger pacing back and forth at, from the point of view of the floor <laughs> essentially or what would be the the family downstairs looking up at the ceiling and then suddenly the ceiling becomes transparent great visual solve well uh Murnau in the last laugh which i'm obsessed with and we've never shown and i'm determined to show Last Laugh and Sunrise are two of my favorite movies of all time. The Rosetta Stone movies for me. In The Last Laugh, there's this really devastating sequence where the main character played by Emil Yawnings, who's based his whole identity on being the doorman at this very fancy hotel in Berlin. Because he's old, um, he loses his job. It's a very poignant film, and he gets his uniform taken away. Uh, or basically he gets his job stripped first and he doesn't want to tell anybody uh, in his apartment complex. But the rumor comes back before he can get back. And so he comes back trying to pretend he still has his job. And Murnau wanted to communicate how this gossip that he's lost his job spreads throughout the apartment. Well, how can you do that when you don't have dialogue? Well, the way that he communicated that uh, cinematically was... Uh, he just had one woman whisper to another woman and the camera really quickly tracks in from the two of them uh, into her mouth. And it's just visually, you're like gossip. And then this woman turns and shouts at another woman in another apartment window. And the camera zooms uh, from this woman to another woman in her ear and she's listening and then to her mouth and her mouth. And what a great solve to cinematically communicate gossip. Um, Another uh, German expressionist, Fritz Lang, and I've talked about him before, but uh, another way to communicate visually is through uh, framing of your shot and production design. And one of the things that I noticed, I I recently was finally able to see Denis Belungen, Fritz Lang's medieval ballad epic. And in that, Fritz Lang really used set design, as he would in Metropolis as well, Uh, to communicate a lot of things cinematically and psychologically. And the thing I noticed he did was there is a lot of vertical lines and then horizontal lines. And uh, the sets are incredible. And because the movies were shot in 1-3-3, which is an aspect ratio that essentially is a square, um, I know you guys know this. If it's widescreen, it's a rectangle. It's 2-3-5, which a lot of people now shoot considered widescreen to be cinematic. But the great thing about shooting in a one three three or a square is you can emphasize the vertical uh, way more than you can in widescreen. You can emphasize the vertical and, frankly, the horizontal, I, I believe. There are a lot of sets in Denibelungen where there's some kind of church, and it just goes vertically way, way up. And then there are these steps in front of the church, and they're very horizontal. And he'll put a person who will walk diagonally or be in the center of it. And it really, uh, in an interesting way— emphasizes the stakes of, because Denis Belungen really deals with a kind of um, the power struggles and battles of kings and queens and families. Uh, this very shorthand in betrayals and backstabbing. And you see these people, but they're made very small by the things that they've built. And so there's this wonderful visual idea communicated that these people are fighting these epic things and hundreds of people are dying and these societies are clashing and yet the individuals themselves seem very expendable. They seem very fragile given how Lang is communicating visually with the production design and the set design. 
another person I want to talk about is, uh, and this is a different kind of communication, uh, another way of communicating, of course, that's not necessarily visual or production design or costume is editing, montage. And we've been here before, and, and I've written some blogs about it. But uh, there, one interesting person we haven't talked too much in our pods is a filmmaker I love, and if I can't believe I didn't mention him. Um, he would also be probably in my top ten is Stan Brakhage, avant-garde filmmaker Stan Brakhage. And Stan Brakhage is an American filmmaker who made hundreds, maybe thousands, I want at least hundreds, I feel safe in saying, short avant-garde films from when he was a teenager in the 1950s all the way up almost to his death. And uh, initially his movies uh, were much more, there were people in them. As he got older, I think to protect his family more, uh, be in his second marriage, he decided to focus more on much more abstract things. So a lot of his later movies, he would paint on film. You've probably heard about this. Uh, and he would just create amazing things. One of his later films that I love is a film called Commingled Containers, where uh, he he would shoot light and things he would put in water that would move and he would edit between them. So they were much more abstract. But in his earlier films, uh, which are some of his most well-known films, uh, he would he would be in them. He would have his first wife in them. He'd have his children in them. He'd have friends in them. Uh, and what's interesting about the Brackage movies is they, they almost never have dialogue. There are some that do. Uh, there's some where he says poems and some where he talks. But mostly his films don't have dialogue or even inner titles other than the title. There's another movie uh, that's in my top 10 films of all time that Stan Brackage made that I really highly recommend if you have the stomach for it. So there, there is something I have to warn you about. And that's a movie called The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes. And Brackage, this was made in the late 60s, I believe, early 70s. Brackage was in Pittsburgh at the time and really dealing with death. And he made a trio of films that dealt with death. I've only seen this one, The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes. And I think it's about 20 minutes, I want to say. It could be 30 minutes. I could be off on my runtime there. But he went into a morgue and he filmed a night of autopsies. And the agreement he made with the doctors was that he wouldn't show the faces of these folks that uh, the autopsies were being done on. And these were poor folks who were homeless, uh, unhoused, uh, had mental health issues, and had ended up in the morgue, basically, for the most part, I believe. Uh, and you watch these autopsies, and don't watch this movie if you can't stand to see actual I mean, you're seeing actual autopsies. People are, are cut open, um, and you're seeing dead bodies, real dead bodies, and you're seeing real viscera. You're seeing real organs. You're seeing real brains. You're seeing all of this, real real uh, symptoms and effects of death uh, immediately after death. But there's no dialogue. There's not even sound in it. It's uh, And you sit there and you watch it, and you do really have to engage with what does it mean to be alive, what is our relationship between consciousness and our body? Uh, what am I seeing? Uh, and, and whatever your ideology is or your philosophy is, the act of seeing with one's own eyes, Brackage's film, visually really makes you do something that Americans don't like to do, which is engage with death uh, in a very <laughs> real way for 30 minutes. Uh, and it's incredible. And it's an amazing way of, of communicating visually. Just uh, to keep on that train about editing and montage, which is a huge element to me of uh, communicating cinematically, an idea in every shot. One of the arts that I love, uh, that I don't, I personally don't feel like I see enough of in cinema and, and me, is cross-cutting. 
And cross-cutting is, is uh, the effect of you have one scene playing one place and another scene playing another place, and you actually go between the two scenes. And that forms a third kind of sequence or idea. This is probably most easily communicated in The Godfather. Most, most of us have seen Godfather Part 1. And at the end, uh, Michael Corleone is becoming the godfather to his sister's uh, child in a church. And so it's a baptism, a Catholic baptism. And the priest is asking uh, Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, who has now risen to become the the boss of his crime family, the Corleones, uh, if he rejects Satan. And, And he says, yes, I reject Satan. But that sequence is intercut as he says those things with uh, his order to kill the heads of the other five families, uh, mafia families in New York. And so as he's saying, I reject Satan, I reject all his works, I believe in God, all these things, you're seeing his, Michael Corleone's capos, murder uh, people and murder not only the mafia bosses, but like anybody around them. And so the idea that suddenly is created in this incredible sequence is hypocrisy. Um, someone who uh, does this really well too, or or used to in a lot of his cinema, is Steven Spielberg. Um, Spielberg was someone who clearly understood cross cutting, and uh, you know, a real easy example of that uh, would be in Raiders of the Lost Ark and ET. So in Raiders, when Indy and Sala are uncovering the Ark. Uh, it's cross-cut with Marion and Belloc and Marion trying to escape uh, Belloc. And that cross-cutting, uh, it just creates all these wonderful cinematic moments uh, for um, cuts across, uh, movement across cuts. So that's the kind of thing where if you lift something in shot A uh, or you're going to slam something down in shot A, that's a better example, um, then you finish it in shot B, but it's something totally different that gets slammed on the table. But you get this weird feeling that it's one continuous movement. And Spielberg does that all the time. In E.T., when E.T. drinks beer at home and watches John Ford's Quiet Man, which I love, uh, that's like multi-multi for film nerds. Then you see Elliot at school releasing all the frogs and kissing the girl just like uh, John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara kiss in The Quiet Man. That's another great example of Spielbergian uh, cross-cutting. Another great example of cross-cutting is in Jean Renoir's La Chion from 1931, amazing movie that, again, we will show, uh, that has been remade several times but is essentially about a stuffy man in a horrible marriage who falls in love with a much younger, very beautiful woman, but she's just playing him. She and her pimp boyfriend are just playing him. And uh, when he finds out ultimately how much he's been played, uh, he murders her. And in the sequence in La, in La Chion, in Renoir's La Chion, down below her apartment, there's like a Punch and Judy, if you know those puppets. Uh, I'm not really familiar with them. I feel like previous generations knew them much more because this was a puppet show that used to play all over in Europe where each it was like Commedia dell'arte and you knew the characters and I think two of the characters were a wife and a husband and the wife's always beating up the husband or something and the husband's always coming home late drunk or something I, 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 I don't know I don't want to speak too much because I don't know a lot of the signifiers of Punch and Judy but nevertheless all these kids are laughing at a marital dispute in a puppet show and it, 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 Renoir cross cuts with this man realizing he, his own, you know, realizing what a fool he is and how cuckolded he's been and how this, and the woman just laughs at him. And, you know, you idiot, how could you think I could love you? Uh, It's a really brutal scene, but it's made deeply ironic. It's made deeply ironic by the cross-cutting, which is uh, incredible. 
Uh, moving on from there, I just want to talk about real quickly uh, three other ways that um, you can communicate uh, cinematically. Another way, of course, is within the shot itself. And very few people, I feel, are super talented at this. Uh, again, I have to go to Spielberg and Hitchcock for this. Uh, Spielberg, Raiders, a real easy example is Marion hides in a basket and then the Nazis grab the basket. Indy knows, this is in Cairo, and Indy knows, oh no, Marion's in the basket. I got to find her. He's chasing after her in these narrow uh, corridors uh, in, in Cairo. And suddenly he runs into this amazing close-up shot where you can tell he's seeing something and you don't know what he's seeing. And then the camera moves back and it shows what he's seeing. And he's seeing all of these, what maybe clothes sellers or launderers, and they all have baskets that look just like the basket Marion was in. And it's a great way. You get it. Oh, no. <laughs> now he's, how's he going to find her? And that actually felt like a very Hitchcockian way of communicating something. Um, Hitchcock uh, does a great thing, and this is slightly different, in 39 Steps, where there's an amazing sequence relatively early on in the picture where our hero uh, is, he knows that he's wanted for a murder he didn't commit, and he's got to stop this spy from getting out of the UK with sensitive information, very typical sort of Hitchcock plot. And he is on the run, and he goes into this farmhouse where this very a stingy farmer uh, is willing to give him a place to stay for the night because he pays well. And then he, the farmer's wife, and the farmer are all sitting at this table uh, in Scotland. Uh, you know, he's saying this prayer. Everything's very austere. He's sort of mean to his wife. Uh, not sort of. He is mean to his wife. And the wife and our lead character have a attraction to each other. They're not acting on it, but um, you can feel it. And what's interesting is the husband can feel it too. So there's this scene around the table where the husband is praying and the wife looks at this newspaper that the, the our hero is trying to hide because the newspaper says something to the effect of a uh, suspected murderer on the run and it has his photo, our hero's photo. And the wife looks at the photo, puts it together, looks at the man, looks at our hero, Robert Donat, and Robert Hannay, I think is his name in the movie. And so looks at Hannay, and then Hannay looks at her and with his eyes begs her not to say anything. And the husband who's saying the prayer, he's looking at them with his askance eyes because he thinks that they're uh, flirting. Uh, instead of what's happening. And all of this, none of this is communicated in the dialogue. This is all communicated with Hitchcock's shot selection, the looks, and his editing. And so that's another way I've noticed, you know you're in great cinematic hands when, uh, yes, there may be dialogue, but sometimes the dialogue is contrapuntal or ironically... Uh, adjacent to what's actually happening. And that creates this third or fourth or fifth level of meaning. And that's another way of communicating uh, cinematically. Wrapping it up here, I would also shout out, and someone we haven't talked about, but you know is one of my favorite filmmakers, is Akira Kurosawa. And uh, in his movie High and Low, uh, one of, I think, is apps, I would probably cite my three favorite Kurosawas, the, just for me personally, as a Kuru, Seven Samurai, and High and Low. Although I love so many, and I, it's almost just dumb to even say that. But in High and Low, even in the title, the Japanese title is actually Heaven and Hell, which I prefer personally. But uh, the first half of the movie, more or less, takes place in uh, Toshira Mifune, who plays Gondo, this uh, shoe company executive, in his house, which is up on a hill overlooking 
a more working class, poor part of Tokyo, some some suburb or prefecture of Tokyo. And the that's heaven. That's this huge house. He clearly has money and wealth. And he is uh, looking out. Uh, and now, nevertheless, this kidnapping plot happens. It turns out that uh, he thinks his son has been kidnapped. And then it turns out that, no, it's his chauffeur's son who's been kidnapped. And the whole first part of the movie takes place in his house. When it goes to hell or low, which is the, the second half of the movie or last third of the movie, uh, and that part of the movie, the police take over and they're trying to find this kidnapper. And it's amazing procedural, but now we're in the city and now we're in the working class parts. We're in the hospitals, the garbage dumps, the the, the sweltering non-air conditioned uh, closet-like apartments. And what Kurosawa does, dance clubs, it's so amazing. But what he does is he really goes beyond what would be realistic. And this was something that uh, Kubrick, I think, really fundamentally understood too, and probably a lot of filmmakers, which is that um, I've heard people, filmmakers say this before, which is realistic is good, but interesting is better. When you see certain filmmakers, they will push things into the point of expressionism and sometimes pushing them beyond to, to a level of, whoa. And, but when it works, you don't realize it. So it, for instance, in high and low, there's a sequence where the police are following the kidnapper and they they know he's the kidnapper now pretty much. And what they're trying to do is catch him in the act of trying to murder someone. Cause he murders his partners in the kidnapping because they're junkies, heroin addicts by giving them pure heroin. And uh, it's just too much. And they OD and they can't pin the murder on him. And so they follow him as he goes into the junky part of town. And the way that Hitchcock portrays it is like you're on a ring of Dante's Inferno's hell. Uh, the junkies are made to look almost like sunken, uh, hungry demons or ghosts. And there are dozens of extras. By dozens, I mean 50, 60, 70 in this alleyway. And they're all moving around. Uh, and there's this really non-realistic bright, bright light that's backlighting them and, and lighting the walls. And there's way too much newspaper and trash on the ground. And they're scratching and screaming and in, in uh, the, the throes of withdrawal. And when the police move through them or when the killer moves through them, they part like an ocean and then they form back. And so this sequence, it, it's not, it, it, what's funny about it is that it feels psychologically correct. Uh, it, you know, you don't question ever the reality or the truth of the subjective emotional psychological feeling of the junkies, how they feel. This is probably how their world feels to them or withdrawal. Nor do you question uh, how the police or the killer feel not, you know, feeling nervous to be in this this area where they could be killed or people want to trade sex for drugs. It's a really intense scene. Um but it's very, very, very expressionistic. And Kurosawa uses all the tools of cinema to uh, communicate the hellishness, uh, the hell of this. Uh, and then um, another person I was thinking that earlier, another person who's a, an idea in every shot, although it's a little different, is Frank Capra. And one of the things that's always interesting to me is that Spielberg really does embody uh, many of the traits of all the people we talked about. Uh, and it, one of the things that Capra does is Capra early in his career was a gag man for a silent film actor named Harry Langdon, uh, who was a silent film comedian. And I think because of his 
Frank Capra's time as a gag person for a film comedian, a silent film comedian like a Chaplin or a Harold Lloyd or a Buster Keaton, I think he did think in terms of gags. And you do hear a lot of people talk about gags. And gags are, they're a little different than what we've been talking about, but gags are an idea in a shot uh, where there's a little joke in the shot. Uh, The story keeps moving forward, but you get like, it's, I don't even know how to explain it. I want to tell you it's sort of the cherry on top of the whipped cream of every shot. But Capra, I think, he said the cardinal sin in film is being boring. He said that's the cardinal sin. So you feel in Capra, sometimes to Capra's detriment, but in in It's a Wonderful Life, certainly not. And I'm a a huge Capra fan. Uh, I would say Mr. Smith goes to Washington, meet John Doe, um, uh, Mr. Deeds goes to town. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, It happened one night. What you'll notice in Capra is there's a gag. There's an idea in every shot. So an example of this in It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey comes home after the bank run and uh, he and his wife Mary, uh, played by Donna Reed, and George Bailey's played by Jimmy Stewart, they they, they used all their money they were going to use on their honeymoon to uh, help the people who had invested in the Bailey building and loans so that they didn't have to close down and they gave them their own honeymoon money. So uh, George Bailey wants to know where Mary is, his wife he just married, and it turns out she's in this abandoned house that they both uh, had had an experience at when they were teenagers. Uh, or anyway, you got to see the movie. But he walks into this house, it's raining, and Mary has converted the house, which we'll discover will become their their house, their home. She's converted this abandoned house with the help of uh, George's friends, Ernie and Bert, or uh, the, the cop and the taxi driver, uh, into their like travel posters up. There's a dinner. There's a turkey that's rotating in the fire, and it's rotating in the fire by a rope that's tied to a record player. Uh, and then, so George Bailey is looking at these shots, you know, and, and Capra does this thing where the camera pans on all this and then it pans into the bedroom and there's a bed and a heater and George, his eyes widen. And I've always loved that shot because it's their honeymoon night. It's their wedding night. And without saying anything, you know where the night's going to end. Uh, and it, I'm like, that's great. That's great. They're going to have sex. <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, and it's and it's communicated. There's no ambiguity about what the shot's supposed to say because then it cuts to a reaction shot of Jimmy Stewart going, huh? <laughs> uh, but then just prior to that, there's another gag where Jimmy Stewart walks to the doorstep of this house confused. And um, I think it's Ernie. Ernie's the taxi driver. Uh, he's at the door pretending to be like a concierge or butler or maitre d' at, at this you know, mock hotel they've created. And he says something in sort of butchered Americanese French where he's like, entree, mon frere. And he leans back and he's got a hat. And when he leans back against the door, the hat tips up. And then George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart, nods down because he's also wearing a hat. But because he's been in the rain, when he nods, all this rainwater falls. It's it's a great little joke. Uh, you know, d- doesn't have anything really to do with the story, but it's like a grace note. I've noticed that uh, the, the, to me, some of my favorite filmmakers, there's a grace note in every shot. There's an idea in every shot. I am going to end this by saying that I one of the things I love is although I am not, I, I'm I'm very ambivalent about TikTok. I will say I'm recording this in 2023. I'm sure in a few years, <laughs> this will be a very outdated reference. But um, it, TikTok right now is a social media site where between 30 seconds to three minutes, uh, you'll see a clip and you scroll through it. And it's it's like I heard someone describe it as digital fentanyl. And I think it's right. I've lost 30 minutes, 40 minutes to it and just really wished I hadn't even started. So I'm actually trying to wean myself off of it. But uh, I will come across 
really creative short films or really creative young people using the TikTok uh, form uh, to tell these really short stories or do things I never thought of uh, and uh, cuts and use the medium in new ways. And that is a new way of cinematic storytelling. And prior to this, there was a, a app that's now, um, I don't even know if it exists anymore, um, called Vine. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist, I think, I think, because I used to have Vine. I used to love to see what people did on Vine, where it was a 10 second, I think 10 or 20 seconds. You had 10 or 20 seconds to tell a story. Uh, I used to hear that Kubrick loved to just watch American commercials. And he would say that, uh, and this was in the 70s, I heard, 70s and 80s. He said some of the best storytelling was uh, in cinematic storytelling was American commercial. So I feel that even to this day, not even, that's the wrong way to say it, but there's always someone out there who's young, uh, and they don't even have to be young, but they just have the the open mind, the young mind. I, I know that the Japanese have a term for this, um, where they're just like, what if we did this? What if we tried that? And that's how you discover new things in the form. And I, I never buy... I never buy the argument that it's all been done before. I, I understand where it comes from. I'm not unsympathetic to the sentiment behind it, but I just I think it's a dangerous. Uh, I think it's dangerous, uh, depending on how you use that rationale. And so I, I love to try to engage and bathe myself in new filmmaking and how can that go into films. So let's wrap up there. Uh, these are all the things that were on my mind this week, how to communicate cinematically, an idea in every shot. Thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, next week, we will be back, Secret Movie Club Podcast 160, when it'll be back to the conversation format uh, with the Secret Movie Club team, and uh, we will be discussing documentaries, specifically Crumb, an American movie. We, we just did that double feature, and they, weirdly, they go together. They pair well. They're both 90s documentaries. They both uh, are about real fascinating American characters. They both deal with artists. Uh, and at the same time, ultimately, they are in some ways deeply different. Crumb is much darker. As funny as it is, it's much darker. Uh, American movie ends up, even though American movie is can be dark, it, it ends up being fairly uplifting. Uh, but we're going to talk about the documentary and how important the documentary is to cinema and these two docs. So join us uh, next week. Happy Halloween. We're working hard. Uh, to make sure that Secret Movie Club is providing great events for you guys, great things, and grow it and make it, you know, take it to the next level. So thank you all for continuing to go on this journey with Secret Movie Club, and I will see you next week. Have a great weekend, and I love you, family.